I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air. And this is your weekly briefing for the week ending July 3rd. In this episode, every year, EE Times assembles a list of the most innovative startups in the electronics industry. Since 2004, it's been called the Silicon 60. In the last few years, however, there's been an unusual flurry of new semiconductor startups founded, thanks to venture capitalists' renewed appetite for hardware companies. So, for this year's edition, the 20th edition of the Silicon 60, we expanded it to the Silicon 100. Our colleague Peter Clark has been compiling our annual roundups of the world's hottest startups from the beginning. We'll hear from him about how this year's list is different and about how the role of startups has evolved over time. Also, we recently ran a story about how engineers can volunteer their services around the world. Purdue University has actually established a program called Humanitarian Engineering in response to the growing number of students who want to study engineering specifically to apply those skills in situations generally not addressed by the commercial market. We'll have a discussion later on with Purdue professor Mary Pilat. Startups merit special scrutiny because they're vehicles for technological innovation. If you want to know what the hot new technology is, it's easy to tell. You find out what startups are getting funded. This is especially true as more electronics get deeply embedded into systems as a foundation driving the overall technology evolution. Editor Peter Clark has been putting together the feature from the beginning. We're pleased to have him here on the podcast this week. Peter, the first thing I want to ask you is the obvious question is, uh, we used to do the Silicon 60. This year we're doing the Silicon 100. Uh, What's the rationale for the expansion? Well, um, there's, there's a couple of things. Um, one is that we noticed over the last two, three years, there has been a dramatic expansion in the number of startups uh, that are coming to market that have perhaps been formed in the mid part of this uh, preceding decade. Um, so we could see a lot of companies coming forward. And uh, in, in one particular area, which is uh, machine learning and artificial uh, intelligence processing, the number is is fantastic. The tens and tens and tens, I mean, 20, 30, 40, maybe approaching a 50 com- uh, companies, um, startups well-funded to attack these markets. So we felt we just had to uh, broaden our uh, reach and, and, and scope just to stop the Silicon 60 becoming unbalanced with too many uh, processor companies. Um, we did bring a lot in, but by expanding it to 100, we felt we were able to keep uh, the, the broad balance we wanted to. And uh, what about the geographical balance? It uh, it would, uh, you know, just casually looking around the world at startup activity, it seems that uh, um, the European Union is interested in supporting local R&D. Um, the Asia Pac region is in China, Taiwan, especially, are, um, are are looking to support more R and D activity, and consequently, that uh, that ends up uh, manifesting as a bunch of startups. Um, 
I mean, you're absolutely right. Um, it's interesting that, that, that cultures are, are different. Without doubt, the most aggressively entrepreneurial culture still is uh, California and Silicon Valley. Um, now, I think a lot of that is to do with um, the, the success of, of previous generations of companies and venture capitalists. Um, you know, the, the seeds of their own success are, are carried forward. Um, there are other countries which are perhaps less entrepreneurial. For example, Japan has a very good uh, academic base, a very good uh, engineering base. It, it has a semiconductor industry that has had to uh, realign uh, with, with some pain over recent years, but uh, it has relatively few uh, startups. Um, and I think that is a cultural uh, thing. Um, China, however, is, uh, with a lot of uh, government-backed funding, is really uh, motoring with, with startups at the moment. Um, so I would say that the two hottest regions for startup activity are California and China. Um, Europe, it produces startups. I have to say that there is a tendency um, it, on this continent uh, where I'm based for us to try and do technology push. You know, academics will have an idea. Can we do this? Oh, yes, this looks amazing. Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be great if we could do this? And they're pushing technology, whereas I, I think in, in other regions, people have learnt it's all about uh, the customer's pull. What does the customer want? And how can you ease their pain points or make life easier for the customer? And that what's, uh, that, that what makes money. So I'm afraid we, we tend to have a few too many startups in Europe that, uh, that uh, go okay for two or three years, and then they kind of hit the, hit the, hit the sand. Hmm. So there are regional differences in terms of the culture, the, the technological culture, uh, perhaps the educational culture, the academic culture as well. What about the money culture? Is the money culture global yet? Um, no, I would say not. Uh, I would say uh, the venture capital, the, the classic venture capital culture is very evident in North America, in particularly in the United States. Um, in Europe, it's just less mature. There's slightly less of this uh, money looking for a home. There tends to be a little bit more directed uh, state spending uh, in support of startups, which is, you know, kind of very welcome. But um, governments tend to be not very good, or government agencies tend to be not quite so good at, at picking winners. Um, and again, you know, if we look to China, there, there is a strong uh, private equity and VC uh, culture becoming established there. But, you know, it's governments are also doubling down and are directing some of that money. So I'm beginning to see activity of, uh, you know, California VenCap um, looking to invest in Israel in China, in Europe, uh, I'm beginning to see a little bit of that uh, uh, among Chinese investors as well. Um, is this a new phenomenon, or or is it uh, just not that big yet? Uh, it, it 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 is 
um, it's not a totally new phenomenon, but I, I think it probably is gaining ground with, with globalization. Um, so, I mean, the bigger trend that uh, kind of washed through our part of the industry was if we go back uh, 20 years, 10, 15, 20 years, VC fell out of love with hardware. Um, they they felt they weren't getting the, the 10x returns they liked and had got uh, in the previous times. They felt it was getting harder and harder to make those big wins. And they liked what they saw in, in software and internet-mediated services a lot more. They could see the rise of uh, Google and uh, and they said they all wanted a piece of that. And, and VC investment kind of dribbled away by 2010 or something to almost nothing. We still had some strategic investors. We had people like Intel Capital and uh, one or two VCs sort of carrying the torch for, for, for Semiconductor. But uh, a large part of that had gone away. Um, but it came back. Uh, I think uh, VCs found that although the barriers to entry in, in software and services are much lower, that means there's a lot more competition and a lot fewer winners. Whereas uh, you know, the, the problem with, with the semiconductor sector is um, the barriers, barriers to entry and the cost of entry is high. And so you've got to bet big or go home. Dare I invoke the term unicorn? Yeah, you can say unicorn. We do have some uh, hardware-oriented unicorns, but not many. There's, there's probably a lot more uh, soft unicorns and, and services unicorns. Yeah, that that may have explained a little bit of the uh, uh, of where the money was going, right? Yeah, but on the other hand, what, what kind of illustrates the, the the rebound and the change in culture that's happened in just the last two three years is we have startups that have you know, on basically on, on, a, on a foil set and, and, and some very good pitching, have got a quarter of a billion dollars nearly. Um, I mean, these people who, who reckon they're going to set the world on its ear in the area of places like quantum computing and, and, and so on. So there are people who are prepared to bet big on what they see as big developments, which are fundamentally hardware-based. So we were talking earlier about this, and I want to uh, kind of revise, revisit the conversation, um, and that's about the role of um, startups in the technology industry. Um, it seems to me, my observation was that over the years, um, startups have become the place uh, where some of the more uh, adventurous R&D gets performed. Uh, the big established corporations uh, focus their R&D efforts very tightly on, um, you know, uh, more of the D than the R, uh, something that's, uh, that's going to pay off for them directly in the near term or, or has a very good chance of it. Uh, whereas they let, uh, let the startups do some of the more adventurous stuff and then invest or purchase them outright later. Is that, um, uh, do you feel that that's. Well, I, I'm not sure I quite agree with that because, um, you know, some of the, the longer term research is not going to be of interest to venture capitalists and, uh, and therefore probably not of interest to entrepreneurs. Um, so that possibly does belong 
somewhere between the academic world, between some of the specialist uh, institutes, you know, we have two or three in Europe. Uh, we have IMEC and Letty, who do a lot of this uh, sort of ten-year horizon uh, research work. Um, but but it's also the people like IBM and uh, Intel and, um, and some of these larger corporations. They can fund that. Um, I think when it comes down to D, um, again, the big corporations will do their own D, but they also like to cover the uh, cover their bets. So, I mean, we've seen a company like Intel make three or four big purchases in the area of uh, AI processing. And, uh, you know, some of that first money that was spent is probably not going to bear fruit, but it was part of a learning process for Intel. You know, they were doing their own R&D and they saw an opportunity out in the market and they wanted to buy it and, and try and bring it into their, into their uh, product offering. Right, right. Um, is there any distinction in your mind uh, between um, startups that, uh, um, that are established with the notion of becoming a big independent um, organization unto themselves uh, versus those startups that are maybe hoping and praying that somebody will buy them out? Okay. Um, well, I think it's very hard to make that distinction. People can set off on this journey with, with all sorts of intentions. And, of course, four years down the road, seven years down the road, you know, things have happened. You know, markets have changed. They've, they've had to pivot or not. Um, and I think the other thing is, if, if you want to have total control of your startup, don't take uh, equity finance, don't take VC, because once you do that, you're, uh, you're kind of beholden to these uh, people. Uh, and quite rightly, they will expect a payout. Um, Vulture capital? Well, I, you know, I don't like to characterize it that way. Um, you know, these people are putting large amounts of money up at high risk, and uh, a lot of those 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 bets, you know, produce no return or very little return. But um, but you know, they're looking for either a trade sale or possibly an IPO down the line. Now, the IPO might be the way a startup goes on to to greatness, uh, and the name is preserved, but. I'm not sure the venture capitalists care that much. There's a couple of examples of startups that have become fairly well established. Um, you had mentioned to me earlier Arm. Well, you know, all, all of these companies start out at some point, and, uh, and and Arm's genesis was was pretty unusual in 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 the UK uh, back then, 1990, I think, 1991. Um, it, it was founded by three active companies uh, and one, I think, Japanese finance company. But, but the three active companies were Apple, VLSI Tech, and uh, Acorn Computing in Cambridge. And, uh, you know, I, I think those companies had a, a longer-term vision uh, and were sort of keen to see um, some of those Cambridge University ideas propelled forward in, 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 as risk processors. Um, as it happened, you know, the first CEO, uh, Sir Robin Saxby, as he now is, I mean, he was able to guide uh, 
arm through those uh, difficult waters, and, and eventually, of course, the company was able to IPO. Um, you know, I, I suppose I, you know, I would give the example perhaps in the current list of uh, a company like uh, Sci Five, which was founded out of uh, University of California Berkeley research in, into risk uh, and an attempt to create a sort of contemporary, uh, up-to-date uh, risk uh, op- uh, instruction set. And, um, you know, one might suppose that the founders there have got a long-term view for, for that architecture and for that company. But, of course, you know, anything can happen. And if, if somebody puts a, a certain amount of money down on the table – the, the board of directors has to uh, take an offer uh, seriously and, and do do the best thing for the shareholders. Are there a, so Sci Five is in the Silicon One Hundred. Is that correct? They are. Yeah. Okay. I, I mean, I, I think of them as a kind of sort of poster child for for the the, the risk V movement. But of course, there are a lot of other c- companies uh, trying to to make business in that area. Yeah. Uh, is there anybody else in the uh, Silicon 100 that has telegraphed um, uh, an intention to uh, to be acquired or or, uh, or go for an IPO? No, I, I don't think so. And, and I don't think, uh, you know, again, it's just not something a company would wish to do. Um, they would... I think very often state from the get-go that they intend to to come to market and, and live a full and independent life. But, you know, meanwhile, we see plenty of entrepreneurs who are indeed serial entrepreneurs and, and bring a startup to market, make it successful, sell it on, start another one, do the process again. Inference, not implication, huh? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, anything else about the Silicon 100 or about startups that I didn't ask about that uh, that popped out of you in your research this year? Well, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, we've made this expansion to 100, but I, I am um, very intrigued by, by the, the, the rapid pace at which um, Silicon 100 type startups are being generated or, or were generated back in 2015, 16, 17. Um, it really does feel qualitatively different to, to the way it has done previously. And, and I suppose I, I would also just kind of loop back to something we, we, we mentioned earlier. This sort of market is always changing. Um, 10 years ago, it was maybe it was about SOC. Before that, it was perhaps a little bit more component-oriented um, we're now very much entering the sort of uh, system area era, and uh, many companies, even when they do have a hardware base to what they're doing, are also selling software, internet connectivity uh, as part of a bundle uh, to address new applications. The Silicon 100 is available on our website. It's available in two formats, as an ebook or as a downloadable PDF. If you're already registered as a user on our website, you'll get straight to it. But if you're not, you should see a window pop up requesting that you register. You'll find a link on our homepage, another on the page with the transcript for this podcast, and the Silicon 100 could also be found in our new 
Books section. Doctors Without Borders is a non-governmental agency, or NGO, that operates around the world, providing free medical services where medical care is scarce or completely lacking. Very often, that's in underdeveloped areas or in conflict zones. Providing medical attention for immediate health concerns is critical, but what about long-term support? There are any number of concerns, from securing a source of potable water to generating energy to mitigating or preventing recurring disasters. Uh, Think of annual floods or droughts. These are infrastructure problems, and the solutions to many of these problems are technological in nature. We were wondering if there were similar organizations for engineers who wanted to volunteer their services to help build critical infrastructure where it too, is lacking. We asked one of our contributors, Cabe Atwell, to look into it, and Cabe came back with a great roundup of several such organizations where engineers can apply their professional skills to help out. He also discovered that Purdue University has a program in humanitarian engineering. The courses available cover electricity and optics, chemical engineering, math, hydraulics, thermodynamics, and Courses that are designed to plan products, which is to say to turn ideas into implementable projects. Mary Pilot is Director of Engineering Education Undergraduate Degree Programs and an Associate Professor of Engineering at Purdue. We caught up with her earlier this week to ask her about the Purdue program and about humanitarian engineering. Mary, welcome to the show. Tell us what humanitarian engineering is. Well, humanitarian engineering is a great intersection between problem solving, solution finding, and really putting yourself in the space of aiding the greater good of humanity. And so it's an interdisciplinary uh, program here at Purdue that allows students who like to take engineering to all corners of the world, and they can do that through humanitarian engineering. So how, uh, how, when was the program established? So humanitarian engineering uh, operates as a concentration within the multidisciplinary engineering program here at Purdue University. Multidisciplinary engineering's been around for 50 years at Purdue, and it's been an incubator of what I like to describe as the next big engineering discipline. And that's part of our legacy here at Purdue. The humanitarian engineering concentration um, has been around only for four years. And in fact, we just graduated our first official humanitarian engineer um, this year. Although some students prior to this point had what we call a self-designed concentration and were allowed to create something very similar to this. So... When uh, the the program was put together, what was the were there any specific goals uh, you had in mind in terms of the types of engineers you wanted to put out or the types of programs that they might get involved with? So, uh, as with many of our programs, uh, our concentrations, students come to us oftentimes with an idea. And we have many flavors of engineers in our program, as you can imagine. Uh, 
This is just another flavor. But what we saw was there was a deep desire to bring their passion for um, maybe service work in their church or in um, mission trips or even just trying to help their local communities with hurricanes and floods and poverty. And so the students came to us with those sorts of interest areas. From the other direction, the faculty, we have amazing faculty here in engineering education, which is the school that multidisciplinary engineering resides in at Purdue. Some amazing faculty who do um, engineering education with displaced people and in underserved communities around the globe. And so it was um, kind of a nice convergence of research meets student interest. And then because of Purdue, because the power of the course offering that we have here and the great disciplinary um, diversity that we have on campus, we were able to pull together this unique concentration. That's interesting. So the uh, program thus far, I understand that it's young. You've only, you've only uh, got your first few, you know, class of graduates, um, have there been enough experiences uh, between uh, the faculty and the students in the program uh, to characterize the types of um, projects that they've worked on? Or is it just a, a, a kind of a, a grab bag of things so far? So um, absolutely, we have plenty of anecdotal evidence of students engaging uh, with researchers. So um, we really promote student getting lots of experiences, whether that's um, experience in a research lab, which in these cases are often field work, right? Because you have to be in the field with the people to know what sorts of solutions are appropriate for their context. But um, we have students doing research in water filtration, in humanitarian aid, in um, creating learning in kind of, as I mentioned, resource impoverished communities or displaced people camps around the globe. And so students have been doing that sort of work along with things like um, developing urban garden centers and um, helping with returning veterans even um, who may face unique challenges. Um, humanitarian aid in Puerto Rico and in other areas as well. Um, they do work with, I don't know if you're familiar with, engineering projects and community service. So that's actually a service learning course that embeds kind of this humanitarian heart of the students that are in our program. Okay. Uh, you had mentioned that uh, there were there's activity all over the world. Um, you mentioned hydrology, get uh, uh, providing clean water. There are endemic problems. And then there are responses to disasters. It sounds like so. Um, so and, and so, your the students you're involved with uh, um, have have dealt with both types of, of situations. Correct. Right. So um, there's been 
projects involving in Indonesia, um, you know, a, a plain area there that continues to flood, that continues to displace people, that continues to uh, contaminate water sources. That might be one example where other examples might look more like a Katrina sort of disaster. Just out of curiosity, has have your uh, your students gotten involved with uh, um, the power generating element of of some of these projects? Yes, absolutely. And so, um, oftentimes, humanitarian efforts refer to kind of a wash focus, with which tends to stand for water, sanitation, and hygiene. Um, we've taken that and really expanded that to be water agriculture, referring to food source and food safety, sanitation, health, habitat, and energy. And we think those are important areas um, that students can develop more depth beyond their engineering core. Um, and so that's that's kind of how we bundle humanitarian efforts here at Purdue. Okay. Uh, you'd mentioned uh, earlier that uh, it's it's an interdisciplinary program. Um, do you f- try to give all students a full grounding in a variety of different subdisciplines, or uh, or to what extent is it self directed? Do some do do the students come in and say? I have this particular category of problems that I would like to help solve. What are the, you know, what are the courses I ought to take in order to be able to, to do the most good within that category? So it's more of the latter. So as you can imagine, there's so many types of need globally um, and domestically And so rather than try and pigeonhole a student into an area that's so generic that they can't have immediate impact, we really let their kind of their heart and their own personal experience drive the focal point of their work. And so while we, we want them to have that wash background that we, we mentioned, we also want to make sure that you know, if they have an interest in policy and politics around humanitarian aid, they can go deep in that area. If they feel like they're more of a on-the-ground um, language and anthropology-type person, they can go deep in that area. And so we we really let them uh, customize that within certain constraints, of course, to their own personal background, interest, and needs, because these students, as you can imagine, don't just become humanitarians the day they come to Purdue. They actually have been doing humanitarian work in their own right um, well before they arrive at Purdue. They just realize that there's an outlet, a professional outlet for them to continue their work. And, um, you know, that might be their work through Cub Scouts or Eagle Scouts, or it might be, again, um, outreach through their church and faith communities, um, or just even supporting their local community through times of need. So, so you know, we don't really give birth to humanitarian engineers. We give wings to humanitarian people. Ooh, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope that they believe that, too. We, we think they do. It's good. It is good. Um, so, so again, I understand that the program is new. 
Uh, have you seen any um, any corporate interest in um, uh, the program in any way? Actually, we have. And I have to be completely honest. One of the things that we take great care for here is not to just create um, degree programs to placate a student body, let's say, you know. Um, we want them to find meaningful work and to contribute meaningfully in society. And so it's not helpful for us as a university to create degree programs that can't help them achieve a meaningful lifelong career. So let me say that first of all. Um, but we do speak to students who are interested in humanitarian engineering and we discuss the financial aspects that, you know, if you go to work in not-for-profit areas that might look like a less lucrative area, for example, than a for-profit entity. What we've found is that the corporate social responsibility momentum that has begun to become embedded in for-profit companies, especially engineering-focused companies, our humanitarian engineers are a perfect match for the activities that companies want to put in place through corporate social responsibility. And so humanitarian engineers have that, you know, kind of heart of an engineering um, uh, centered person. I mean, I should say head of an engineering centered person with the heart of a humanitarian centered person. And so that's a great match for that. And companies, um, well, I could name brands, but I won't. But there are many companies who specifically um, are very interested in our graduates. And that's exciting, right? That that there are many avenues beyond just not-for-profit. And, um, and I think that's where we can have an even larger global impact, knowing that these multinational brands are willing to um, really put their money where their value statements are and... Uh, embed these very important engineers in their organizations. Well, that's really quite heartening. It is. It's very heartening. So, can I can I ask you once again if you uh, if you would be reconsider identifying some of the companies that are interested? I would rather not do that to them. But what I'll say is there are more than one. How's that? There are there are truly many. There are truly many. And they're coming from various areas. I mean, from various sectors, for example, from heavy equipment to um, supply chain to healthcare, um, and And so that, that really means a lot to me because I think that no matter what type of disciplinary focus you might have as an engineer, you know, you may be more mechanically oriented or electrically oriented or systems uh, oriented and still be a humanitarian engineer. And so knowing that there are firms where you can match your disciplinary um, chops with your, your passion um, is, is so important and very exciting for our graduates. Do you anticipate any interest among older engineers in the program? continuing ed or, uh, you know, just a, a, a career change? I think it would be 
um, a fascinating career change. I haven't personally experienced that here at Purdue yet. Um, perhaps those engineers who have already graduated are going on and getting masters in policy or in other areas at this point. Um, I'm not really seeing returning engineers at this point in time. I will say, however, and this is kind of akin to your earlier question, that we're seeing a lot of interest also from the United States government and oh. um, from the various um, groups within the gov- federal government looking for these types of graduates. For, for their own purposes, um, you know, to hire directly or, or to steer. To hire directly. You know, yeah, really. Hiring directly. And so that's, that's very heartening, very encouraging, um, knowing that we'll not only be, you know, having more humanitarian uh, people in those communities, but we will have solution providers and people who think broadly about um, solving problems for the long run instead of temporary fixes. Cool. Uh, Mary, is there anything I haven't asked about the, the either the program at Purdue or humanitarian engineering in general um, that, uh, that you would like to, to point out? Well, I think um, one thing I'd like to share with everyone is that oftentimes um, engineers think that if you're engineering in a new space, that somehow you're less of an engineer. And I think humanitarian engineering is a perfect example of um, becoming more of an engineer. We're here to make the world better and uh, bringing a ABIT accredited, you know, solid engineering problem space and mindset to the, an area for our world, for our communities Um to me, makes you more of an engineer, not less of an engineer. And I'm very hopeful and very excited to see our program grow. And frankly, all the similar programs that might exist across the United States grow, because I think this is a really important need um, for our world. Fantastic. Um, Off on a complete tangent, when you um, attend or teach at Purdue, are you ever obligated to actually drink a Boilermaker? <laughs> I don't think you're obligated, but I think most of us try it at least once. <laughs> Mary, thank you very much for your time today. I greatly appreciate the opportunity. And uh, again, we look forward to receiving many more humanitarians here at Purdue. We should note that Purdue is not alone. Dartmouth also hosts a humanitarian engineering program. There is also one at the Colorado School of Mines, at Oregon State University, at the Ohio State University, and outside the U.S., there's a similar program at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. By the way, Oregon State gets to be called OSU, while the Ohio State is properly referred to as the OSU. True fact, pops up whenever the Beavers and Buckeyes are playing each other. Anyway, humanitarian engineering. The article that Cabe Atwell is on the website at eetimes.com. 
It's called Humanitarian Engineering Organizations Develop a Better Global Future. There's a link to the story on the webpage with the podcast transcript. The story includes some suggestions where engineers who already have degrees can volunteer, including an operation called Engineers Without Borders. My grandmother, in her lifetime, went from horse-drawn carriages to spaceships. As for me, I have a vivid memory from 1968. I'm sitting at my desk at school reading a science fiction story in which everyone had a computer on their desks, and I remember wondering if I'd ever live to see the day. Yeah, well, technological change is relentless. To quote Vin Diesel, it comes at us fast and furiously. So fast that sometimes we don't have time to reflect on how profoundly technology changes our habits, our culture, our lives. This week, we're going to note a pair of products that were transformative. First, we're going to set the Wayback Machine to July 1st, 1979. That was the day Sony introduced the Walkman in Japan. The company wouldn't release it in the U.S. for another year. The Walkman is now an icon of the consumer electronics industry, but in 1979, it was a gamble. The trend at the time was music players getting bigger. The 1960s saw the introduction of transistor radios, which were amazingly small and portable. They also reproduced sound poorly, especially the lows. Legendary music producer Phil Spector built his wall of sound to compensate for the shortcomings of portable radios. By the end of the 70s, portable radios had been left behind. The market was about boom boxes. And the bigger, the better. It got to the point where the big ones were practically the size of Volkswagen Beetles. Boom boxes all had radios, but they were mostly for playing cassette tapes. Some of them had pretty excellent sound, and were loud enough to drown out a room. And then Sony introduces this portable cassette player that nobody had asked for. This is one of the original ads. You really must see it. Check it out on YouTube, or you can see it on the podcast webpage where we have it embedded. The Walkman was basically a stripped-down version of a recorder created for professional journalists. That hadn't sold very well. The Walkman was so stripped down, it didn't even record, it just played. But it became a phenomenon quickly enough. You see, people had grown tired of being assaulted by boombox owners blasting their music as loud as possible. The Walkman was great for keeping down noise pollution. You could tune other people out, and no one would even know you were listening to the Captain and Tennille and give you a hard time about it. It fit in a purse or a pocket. That it was cassette-based is important. You couldn't record on your Walkman, but odds were high you had a deck at home that could record. And if you loved music, 
odds were that you were making mixtapes for your own enjoyment and to share your music with others. The way we listen to music today, probably on some personal device, and when we share, we share playlists. All of that started with the Walkman and cassette tapes. The Walkman would shatter records for the fastest selling consumer electronics item in history to that time. One of the very few things that would sell more units faster would be the iPhone. Speaking of which, we're going to jump back into the Wayback Machine set for June 27th, 2007. That was the first day that the iPhone went on sale. There was little in the iPhone that was new. Other phones had already had touchscreens and a camera or would run programs or apps. Apple's genius was to combine them into an entire environment that included a high-quality technological object with premium support services. Conceptually speaking, the iPhone was the natural heir of the Walkman. The Walkman product line made it from cassette to CDs to MP3s, but by the end there, the Walkman was limping. Apple's iPods were the most popular MP3 players, and as we know, the functionality of MP3 players was subsumed by smartphones. A lot of things were subsumed into iPhones, or got eaten by iPhones, and to be fair, plenty of other smartphones. A lot of people no longer have separate phones, music players, or cameras, still or video. A lot of people no longer need separate remotes for their audio equipment or their TVs, nor for any of their home automation products. It's amazing how many different gadgets we used to have just 13 years ago and how quickly we adapted to not having them. You know, speaking of technological change, a buddy of mine just sent me a note written on a manual typewriter. Hey, there's a sound you don't hear anymore. It's been a long time. You know, maybe some of you have never heard it except in old movies. So anyway, I got a typewritten note last week. It's the first time I'd seen such a thing in, I don't know, maybe 30 years, maybe even longer. It made me think about getting a manual typewriter of my own. But I probably won't. Hey, that's it for the weekly briefing for the week ending July 3rd. Thank you for listening. The weekly briefing is available on all the major podcast platforms. But if you get to us via our website, you'll find a transcript along with links to the stories we mentioned and with other alt multimedia. Visit www.eetimes.com and click where it says radio to find the full archive of podcasts. This podcast is produced by AspenCore Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. A happy fourth to all of you in the U.S., and we'll see you all next week.